Because the whole world gone crazy! Just please, go nuts. What in God's holy name are you blathering about? I mean, really, explore the space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's down there somewhere. Let me take another one. Oh, hello. Hello, hello. there. Hello. Is anybody hello. is anybody home? Knock knock. Who's there? Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful animals podcast. Holy shit. I know. Did you get that on the internet or what? I stole a page out of your book. <laughs> anyway, welcome back to Beautiful Animals Podcast. I am your co-host, Andrew Bosch. And I'm Andy's co-host, Tyler Cole. Yeah. Anyway, welcome back. We're back in the seats to speak to you guys. So thank you so much for joining us. Here we are again. Today we're going to talk about lots of interesting things. Yeah, we're going to get into some weird shit again, right? Yeah, we're going to get into some weird shit. I like it. A little uh, armchair psychology. Yes. Specifically because we're in orange armchairs. <laughs> yeah. Orange armchairs. Yeah. We're going to get into a lot. We're going to... We're going <laughs> to... We're gonna, yeah, totally. It, it, that that defines it well. Actually, it's, it's a big episode uh, or a big topic that we're gonna start unpacking a little bit today, and it's gonna segue into some other episodes that we have planned further down the line. We're just kind of laying some groundwork for a lot of the projects that we're gonna do here at Beautiful Animals Podcast. We're gonna start laying some of that groundwork today. I mean, we've been laying the groundwork for the last sixteen episodes, but <laughs> we're just adding more to the foundation here. Today, we've talked about it briefly in previous episodes, but today I want to do a little bit more of a of a disambiguation or dissection of the idea of the unconscious and subconscious mind. We talked about it a little bit with Young. We're going to recap his theories on it. We're going to talk about Freud again. But we're going to go even further back in this episode, and we're going to talk about older ideas of the unconscious and, and models of the human mind that humans have had for a long time. Specifically, we're going to go back into the Vedas, which are the religious texts of Hinduism mm. in India, and because they have a pretty interesting and specified model of the human mind that I'd like to talk about. And right. It's compare and contrast to the kind of modern model of the conscious and unconscious human mind. For real. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, let's talk about the the Vedas. I'm gonna. I just want to go into. It's gonna be a very like upper levels. We're not really gonna get deep into this. We should. <laughs> we could probably do it. We could definitely do. We could do a whole season on the Vedas if we really wanted to, but we're not gonna. We're just gonna <laughs> talk about them in brief in this episode. All right, all right. So what are the Vedas? The Vedas are the oldest texts of the uh, Hindu religious tradition dating back to like 2000 uh, years BCE. Back uh, in the old pyramid days. In the pyramid days. But in Hindu area, geographically. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> At some point we'll do a deep dive into the Vedas, probably when we talk about Kundalini. Whatever that <laughs> Whatever is. Because <that> is. <laughs> <laughs> they're divided into four parts and then each of those four parts are divided into different parts that talk about, basically they're divided up in like Sort of the the mantras and the sayings and the hymns that are associated with the religious experience, and then there's like another section that talks about what to do with those things, and then there's another section talking about the rituals and ceremonies associated with what those things mean, and there's another section. So in each of the four sections, there's all those sections. So that's the outline for that episode that we're going to do. Yes, at some <laughs> at some point. But today, what we're going to talk about, what I want to talk about, is the model of the mind provided uh, in the Vedas. 
because we're going to talk about different models of the mind. We're talking about the Vedic one, we're going to talk about the Freudian one, and then we're going to talk about sort of the modern day model of the mind and what is the unconscious mind in modern day understanding. You know, from oldest to newest, we're <laughs> yeah. starting with the Vedas. Chronologically. Yes. So in the Hindu tradition, the um, the Vedas kind of divide up the mind or they divide up an individual into five different uh, sheaths or levels. The first level is the physical body. And it's important to note that all of these things are connected, right? As, yeah. as one would assume. You know, that's why it's not just a model of the mind, it's the model of the self. And the first level of that is the physical body called the Anamaya Kosa. Right. In, you know, whatever language that is. <laughs> the second level or second sheath, as you know, you kind of call it. It's just my, think of it as like a, I'm talking about levels, but it's not like bottom to top. It's like, think of it as like concentric circles or concentric levels, like auras emanating out. Oh, yeah. You can kind of think yeah. of it like that. Yeah. So it's like another Russian doll situation. Yeah. Yeah. So there's the physical body and then outside or not as intrinsic as the physical body is the energetic level of the self. It's kind of the next level out. So, I mean, we would probably call that the nervous system or the central nervous system. That makes sense, Because they're talking, in the Vedas, they literally talk about the energetic flow, right? Like, that's where the idea of chakras come from. And it's really interesting. The chakras basically start at the base of the spine and go up to the top of the head. And, And that is, like, when in science, when we talk about the central nervous system or anatomy, we're talking about the brain and the spinal cord. Yeah. So it's directly in alignment with modern day thinking and modern day anatomical understanding within the body but also between the body and the next level up which is the mental sheath or the mental level so it's physical and then energetic and then mental these next three levels can be kind of combined together to represent the vedic model of the mind but it's important to know that they're connected to the first level which is the physical body and the second level which is the energetic part of the body (laughs) yeah those three levels mental intellect and bliss are kind of the vedic model of the mind and it's interesting that it's divided into three because you'll see when we get to the freudian level it's also divided into three so in the vedic tradition the energy that underlies all of the physical and mental processes is called prana so like we said, we got the five levels, physical body, energy, mental, intellect, and bliss. In the Vedic system, mental, intellect, and bliss are kind of lumped in together to this understanding or model of the human mind, which is uh, operated on and modified by prana, which is energy. So these the mind is those three levels, but it's also uh, broken up into five basic components, Stay with me. <laughs> Called manas, ahamkara, sitta, buddhi, and atman. Mana, manas or manas, that's the lower mind, and that's the collection of sensory inputs. So that's like, that's just like seeing, feeling, touch. Yeah, just your signals you're getting. That's just the sensory motor mind, right? It's just getting the inputs. And then the ahamkara is the sense of the eye, of the selfness in relationship to those sensory inputs, right? So it's sort of like in modern day science, we talk about how our representation of the world is a 3D model constructed by our mind of our objective environment, right? I think so. (laughs) So, I mean, well, we'll talk about this more deeply in in the modern sense, but that's what they're saying. It's like, okay, you have your sensory inputs and then you have the construction of those sensory inputs into your 
experience of me in a space. Yeah, right. Cons- you're constructing a truth or a, an understanding of yeah, like in what is. I when I'm sitting in this chair in this room, I'm not consciously thinking like brown light, yellow light, orange light, feeling of my butt in the seat, feeling of denim of yeah. my jeans. I'm just I have all of that is wrapped up into this model of me sitting in a chair in this room with you. We're doing that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's just basically a summary. You don't need to explain. Yeah, you don't need to have all of the We'll talk about a case where there's a certain individual who was unable of creating these mm. models and actually, you know, we'll talk more about this later, but you know, autism is sort of you're on a spectrum of a different ability to create these summaries okay. and you're more yeah. engaged in the direct sensory input yes. at all times instead of being able to just kind of chill back with a summary. Yeah. Basically our minds giving us cliff notes all the time of all the data that's yeah. getting in. And in the Vedic tradition, they had a name for this, which is the Ahamkara, which is the sense of the self in the world. Yeah. So yeah. it's just, you just you yeah. don't need to tell the whole story. You don't need to say I'm wearing shoes and wearing socks and wearing the same shirt I wore yesterday. No, you don't need we, to tell the whole story. We yeah. know all that all the time, yeah. but we're not giving it to our conscious mind all <laughs> yeah. the time. And we're going to get more into that when we get to another book that I read for this episode called Subliminal by Leonard Mladenov, um, where he really does kind of lay out the case for the modern understanding of the purpose of the unconscious mind. So I don't want to give it all away right now, but why I wanted to talk about this Vedic uh, model of the mind is because it's accurate in a lot of ways, yeah. <laughs> right? They really, you know, and that's one of the things that we like to give credit on Beautiful Animals Podcast to older traditions of knowledge and understanding because mm-hmm. it's just cool to see like how accurate people were in their guesses yeah. about how we worked, even if they didn't have the same tools that we have now to to model those things and measure those things. Just from their own experience and their own reflection on their own experience, and others' experiences, they were able to get pretty close, especially in this case, in my yeah. opinion. So anyway, uh, so we're talking about these five sort of levels. Manas being the lower level, that's just sensory impressions. Ahamkara, which is the modeling that you then do to kind of develop a sense of self in that space. Um, and the third one is the evaluation and resulting decision-making, right? So that's like your conscious mind. That's um, called the buddhi, or the intellect, so it's like, okay, I've got sensory input, and then I have a model sense of self, and then I have an intellect that can make decisions based on the model. So, like, I can choose to reach over and grab my drink and take a sip of it. Yeah. And that's not the part of the mind that's making the model. It's another part of the mind that's making decisions based on that model. So that's, like, the next level up. I need to address the the fact that the intellect is referred to as booty, Booty. Because, uh, you know, I always, <laughs> that's when I'm, you know, the people I hang out with, I like them to have a good booty, meaning intellect. Yeah, exactly. Everyone. I, I kind of th- like to think of myself as an intellectual, <laughs> which is kind of like a booty. It makes you bootylicious. It makes me a Buddhist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like booty. <laughs> the next piece of the mind in the Vedic tradition is called the Sita, which is the memory bank, right? So this is like... You got your sensory input, you got your model of yourself, you got decisions you can make actively. But then if you want to remember a previous model of yourself, <laughs> right, yeah. that's stored somewhere. In the Vedic tradition, that's called the Sita, which is this memory bank of previous models of experience. It's memory. And but also in the Vedic tradition, it's not just it's not just your memory repository where you grab information from. 
it's also the part of your brain where impulses would arise from unbidden from past experience. So if you were going to relate it to Freud, it would be like the id. And we're going to explain that Mm -hmm. later. But it's essentially, you could correlate it to the uh, subconscious mind or the the id part of the subconscious mind. Yeah. Which, in brief, is... The part of the subconscious mind that gives you, like, when you something pops into your head, like, oh, I'm hungry, I'm going to eat that, and it comes up to your conscious mind, where does that come from? It comes from a memory bank or a storage area or a subconscious level of understanding. Then there's this fifth level in the Vedic understanding of the mind, right, that is called the Atman, which is sort of, be- which is, I don't know if I'm getting this totally right, because I haven't done a lot of research into Vedas, but it's it's sort of a... I think you would relate it to the superego in Freud's model, which we're going to talk about in just a second. But it's sort of this, uh, not just the internal desires and pursuits, but an additional external input, an external level of mental processes. Kind of like almost a species-wide instinct. Uh, Yeah, I think it's, yeah, you could sort of relate it to uh, Jung's collective unconscious Mm -hmm. or like in the Vedic tradition, it probably be more related to your connection with a greater divinity, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Yeah. yeah, like a greater energetic uh, source of information. So those are the sort of five layers of the mind in the Vedic tradition. Okay. We'll come back and do more on Vedas at some point, and chakras, and kundalini. Whatever that is. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, so again, the that Vedic tradition is one of the older, one of the oldest you know, historic traditions, it's religious tradition, but it's a historic tradition where we have human beings model of their own mind represented in text, right? I mean, it was an oral tradition passed down for a long time before it was ever written down. It's a very old tradition, and yet that model of the mind is not far from modern modern models of the mind. Yeah, our modern understanding. Yeah. You know, later on still in an earlier version, uh, earlier... The idea, the word unconscious, at least in Western tradition, starts coming up more in like the 1500s, 1600s, and 1700s. There's some um, early philosophers, Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, and uh, some other guy, who <laughs> start to reference the unconscious mind. Certainly, it's it's referenced in Shakespeare's works as well, um, although it's not called the unconscious. But as we discussed in an earlier episode, it's really... The idea of the unconscious mind is really popularized by Sigmund Freud. So we're just going to go through his model of the mind and mental expression and experience as well as uh, as Jung's because a lot of modern day psychology is kind of rooted in those under, those models and understandings of the conscious and unconscious mind. And we touched on this briefly in the Red Book episodes, but we're going to go a little bit deeper into it. So according to Freud, there were three parts of the mind and each of them exist in different levels of consciousness. So Freud thought of, of consciousness as being separated into your conscious mind and then your pre-conscious mind and then your unconscious mind, right? So there's three levels and then these three parts of your mind exist in those three levels. The three parts of your mind being ego, conscious thought, right? Conscious yeah. uh, understanding yourself. Uh, id, which is instinctual drives, sex drive, hunger drive, those kind of things. And then the superego, which is the sort of moral center, sort of the moral compass or the cultural 
morality placed on mm-hmm. the other elements of your mind. So we'll just go through each of those parts and let you know where they lie on the consciousness to unconsciousness spectrum. Um, we're going to start with the id. Now, the id is, uh, according to Freud, completely embedded in the unconscious or subconscious. You're not aware of the id until it like sends a message to your ego. It's the primitive and instinctive uh, component of personality. It's where all of your urges and impulses come from. It's what it's where the libido comes from, which, uh, according to Freud, was a generalized idea of sexual energy that's used from everything from survival instincts to appreciation of art. The idea being that like it's all wrapped up into sex and reproduction because mm-hmm. you know survival of the fittest or fitness comes from the ability to reproduce. So sexual urges, but also, you know, appreciation of beauty and the sort of inherent instinctual desire to want to do certain things that are going to promote your own sexual fitness further on down the road. Yeah. So you can reproduce them. It can be a natural zesty enterprise. Oh my God. (laughs) You mean coitus? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so according to Freud, id, the id, only responds to what Freud called the pleasure principle, which is if it feels good, do it and nothing else. That's why they call it stroking your ego. No, <laughs> no stroking your head. Yeah, stroking <laughs> your head. So including um, sex, which is you know an instinct for life, eros, um, but also aggressive instinct, which Freud called thanatos, which is like kill things that threaten you. <laughs> Freud would say that the id is is the primary part of the personality of a newborn, right? A newborn child. They just want food, so they cry. They poop, so they cry. All they know how to do is complain. All they know how to do is complain, yeah. (laughs) Only later does a newborn develop the next parts that we're going to talk about, which is ego and then superego. According to Freud, the id remains infantile in its function throughout a person's life and doesn't really change. So it's kind of like the baby part of your brain that always is just want, want, want. It does not touch the external world directly, only through your ego. And it doesn't respond well to logic or anything like that. It's just your baby part of your brain. Makes sense, yeah. I think people probably refer to that as a reptilian part of your brain. Yeah, I was going to say your lizard brain. Your lizard brain, yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk about that later because now we can (laughs) actually see the parts of the brain and we know there's a lizard part of the brain. So, again, not far from the truth. Not perfect. Like we said in the... In the friggin' uh, the fucking... The creation of the world myth. Yeah. It's not right, but it's not wrong. It's not wrong. (laughs) They're not wrong. So, again, Freud had three parts of the brain... uh, residing in different areas of the conscious to unconscious spectrum. We just talked about id, which is pretty much all unconscious, and now we're going to talk about ego, which, uh, according to Freud, is that part of the id which has been modified by the direct influence of the external world. The ego is is only part of the conscious personality because it's like your conscious construct of yourself, and it's where thinking happens as a human being. So your ego is your understanding of yourself and all of your conscious thoughts so when people take like mushrooms and they experience ego death that's like when you realize that that's just a f- sort of fake fictitious model yeah, and there's kinda, no reality to it kind of shatters just, that understanding and you yeah and you got to gotta rebuild, it. rebuild it or or rebuild it with less you know solid walls so you can experience the other parts of yourself more yeah uh it's what a person is aware of when they think about themselves and it's usually what you're trying to it's this the self that you're projecting out into the world, right? Uh, according to Freud, the ego develops to sort of mediate 
the id's desires and the actual, the real world, right? Because your id might say, like, I want that food, give it to me, I'm going to eat it right now. Mm -hmm. But your ego understands, like, I need to give this cashier money in order to get this apple in <laughs> order then, to eat it. <laughs> I got to save it for tomorrow. Yeah. Because I'll be even hungrier tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it mediates our subconscious desires and contextualizes them and makes them appropriate for the real world that we actually live in. And through that process of sort of mediating desire and but putting it in the context of the real world, we end up creating a sense of self because that's how our brains work. Ideally, the ego works by reason, whereas the id is chaotic and unreasonable. Same. Yeah. One thing that one kind of term that you'll hear a lot is um, delayed gratification. Oh, yeah. Right. Because. And that's essentially what we're talking about is mediating your immediate need uh, with the world around you and so delay that gratification for whatever reason. Yeah, usually it's uh, talking about delaying the gratification. You can have one marshmallow now or you can have five tomorrow. Yeah, I think you're actually have you have you heard of that uh, that test? Yeah, it was like they did they did it on some kids in like kindergarten and then as they became adults, you could that was a pretty good indicator of like what kind of person they would turn out to be how they did on that test right yeah it it was a good indicator of their quote-unquote success as adults is how well they could delay their own gratification with the marshmallows yeah so just in brief the marshmallow test i believe it was kindergartners they take a kindergartner they put them in a room they put a marshmallow on the table and they say hey um if you don't eat this marshmallow you can have two marshmallows and then they leave the room and whether your kid eats the marshmallow before the the researcher gets back with the two marshmallows or not is a huge apparently a huge determinant on how literally how successful they'll be in so many different ways like whether or not they're going to get into an Ivy League school whether or not they're going to get into a high paying job later on whether or not they're going to get married and have children like that test alone had strong correlations with the success of those kids later in life basically if you can if your ego is powerful enough to delay the gratification of the id in such a way that you can get a better reward later. Like, you know, like, hey, if I don't get hella drunk tonight and I'm able to work out in the morning, I'm probably going to get on the football team. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. you can see how that extrapolates that same concept of just being able to delay your own gratification can be applied to many such things that you're going to encounter in life where you're having to balance uh, what you want now versus what you want most. And that's the root of a lot of difficulties for human beings in their <laughs> lives is, yeah. is mediating that balance between what you want now and what you want most. Cause yeah, maybe you want to play video games until one in the morning now, but what you want most is probably to wake up early and to have uh, a healthy lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you're able to remember that in the moment and turn down what you want now, delay that gratification for what you want most, you're going to do better in life generally. That's what the ego is supposed to do. And in a, and Freud would say, like, in a healthy individual, the ego successfully balances the id and the superego. Uh, and in unhealthy cases, the id is in more control. And in other unhealthy cases, the superego is in more control. So what's a superego? Uh, according to Freud, superego incorporates the values and morals of society, which are learned from one's parents and others. It develops around the age of three to five years during the phallic stage of psychosexual development. And it's the purveyor of rewards such as feelings of pride and satisfaction and punishments such as feelings of shame and guilt, uh, depending on which part is activated. So it's like 
yeah, it's it's part of the unconscious that is the voice of doing what is right as sort of the moral societal morality voice in yeah. your subconscious, right? So it's also, as Freud said, it's where a lot of your self-criticism comes from. So your id is telling you, I want to eat that ice cream, and your ego's like, okay, I do want to eat that ice cream. And then your super ego says, like, people that eat ice cream are less attractive. So <laughs> if I eat that ice cream, I'm going to feel guilt <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or shame, right? So it's, it's where your understanding of moral values and uh, your own morality and ethics comes from. Uh, the superego contains a vast number of codes or prohibitions that are issued unconsciously, typically in the form of don't statements. So it's not, according to Freud and, and that school of psychoanalytics, superego isn't a, uh, it's less of a driver and more of a uh, restrictor mm-hmm. of oh, desires sense. and activities, right? So your your id is pushing the gas down, and your super ego pumps the brakes. Yeah, <laughs> and then your ego has to kind of figure out where you are on the road. <laughs> I was saying before, like someone with an overactive id is going to be t- is going to have poor impulse control, right? And they're going to be not delaying gratification too often. They're going to be not mediating the real world around them with their desires as effectively. Whereas someone with an overactive superego is going to be overly insecure, overly self-critical, unable to drive forward because of like self-doubt and these like self-restricting thought processes. It also can, the superego can also um, persuade the ego to turn toward moralistic goals and not just survival related goals right so the the idea being that human beings are capable of wanting things outside of just survival necessities just food and water and sex and also want things like that benefit the culture at large and benefit society at large and that those desires do come from the super ego yeah and things like a and things that don't don't benefit anybody like i mean i mean doing good yeah yeah so that sort of moral part of the self a moral desire decision making comes theoretically from the superego just to tie it back to what we were talking about before in the vedic tradition the superego sort of corresponds with the atman or like the more divinely mm-hmm. inspired part of the thought yeah whereas the um the id correlates more with the sita which in the vedic tradition was the memory bank but also the unconscious area that like desires and impulses come from this model has similarities to the Vedic model, right? Yeah, because they're both describing the same thing. They're both, yeah, they're both just people trying to describe people. So, yeah. you know, we get we get pretty good at it. The superego, the moralistic tendencies that, according to Freud, exists in the unconscious, but a little bit in the conscious mind as well. Like you are consciously aware, like okay, of what I should do. <laughs> you know, I'm like yeah. oh, I probably should do this. You know probably shouldn't speed on the way to work even if i want to get there by the certain time i probably shouldn't do that you know so you are somewhat consciously aware of your super ego at work on your ego but according to freud we are not consciously aware of the it at all it just it just exists in this sort of animal nature and it, as soon as you're actually having a thought it's already been given to the ego by the id because the id doesn't have thoughts it just has impulse and yeah. desire so and so it kind of processes it and then turns it into a conscious thought yeah the ego turns it into a conscious thought yeah. so by the time you're having the conscious thought of like man i really want to dive right into that fucking burger like <laughs> <laughs> by the time you're having the, the fact that it is a conscious thought means it's already been transmitted to the ego and what you're understanding the way you're understanding it is via the ego 
even though it comes from the id at a base level. Can we get burgers later? Yes. <laughs> yes, we can. I had one yesterday, but it was a chicken burger, so oh, I yeah. can get a t- beef or turkey burger today, and I'm still good. Yeah. <laughs> you just want to mix up. The you can't eat the same animal every day. Two days in a row. <laughs> Freud said that the the superego can can be tricky in that it can portray what it wants through kind of grandiose terms, and give you a sort of overblown understanding of of why that thing might be good. Why might it be good? Because it's got cheese on it. Because it's got grilled onions on it. That's it. Because it's got a little bit of bacon. Guilt is a is a common problem in people with a su- overactive superego, right? Oh, yeah. Because all of your drives and urges can be kind of translated by the superego as negatives. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that was kind of Freud's, uh, and Freud's understanding of the unconscious mind. Now, we talked a little bit about it, like I was saying in the Red Books, but Jung kind of... Jung divided up the unconscious into two different types of unconscious. I think he agreed a lot with Freud on the way the superego and the id work in the unconscious. But Jung also believed that there was an element of our unconscious called the collective unconscious that we shared with everybody else and perhaps even some kind of greater divine force this was freud or this was this was young this was young yeah yeah this is the difference between freud and young or or where young started to diverge from freud and a lot most new agey kind of science or pseudoscience or religious things take a lot of stuff from young's ideas about the collective unconscious yeah the unconscious mind the idea of the unconscious mind kind of um sat in that capacity the young jungian freudian model of the unconscious superego id ego conscious and, and and collective unconscious for a while but in the 80s there was kind of um a push among in, in the psychological field um to sort of reinvestigate the unconscious mind and, and kind of see if they could figure out what's going on there and one of the things that made this possible was the invention of the fmri machine oh yeah be able to actually look at the brain and see what it's doing yeah uh, the functional fmri stands for functional magnetic resonance imaging so it allows researchers to see electrical signals and blood flow changes in a 3d model of the brain so you can actually see image the brain without opening up somebody's skull yeah that makes them stop thinking you want them to be able to keep thinking yeah still able to watch it (laughs) you want exactly you want people to be alive doing normal stuff and be able to look at their brain which is really hard to do. <laughs> was was impossible before this magnetic resonance imaging. Before you had to use your brain hammer and yeah, people would do this. <laughs> Not where a lot of Open precision. people's brains and poke at it and see what they did. Usually they would say, "Ow." Yeah, it wasn't great. I mean, actually, prior to the fMRI, this is something Leonard Mladenov talks about in his book. Like before, we had magnetic resonance imaging and functional magnetic resonance imaging. The only people just had to take advantage of natural occurrences to study the brain. So like, uh, Oh, like, like accidental lobotomies and stuff like exactly. that. Exactly. Where people would get a piece of, like a spike through the head or something. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. Specifically. Yeah. Brain science got a big jump forward in world war one. Yeah. Cause because a lot of brains got fucked up in world war one. A lot of brains got fucked up, but a lot of brains got fucked up in very specific regions because, well, this is kind of interesting. Like weapons technology in world war one. Like now we have bullets that once they go into your body, they bounce around a lot so that they just kill you everything, and yeah. just tear you up. But in World War One, we didn't use bullets like that. We used bullets that just went in and went out, like yeah. went just straight through. Uh-huh. And World War One had a lot of trench warfare, 
So uh, there were a lot of people that got shot in the head in World War One, yeah. and a lot of people that got shot in the head and survived in World War One because now if you get shot in the head, the bullet bounces around and just tears up your whole brain. Yeah. But in World War One, if you got shot in the head by these this different type of bullet, it would just pass through your brain and not necessarily kill you, but yeah. might damage a particular area of your brain. Scientists discovered in this period of time that different parts of your brain did different things for your body. Yeah, right? there's the part that deals with jokes and there's a part that deals with chickens yeah. you don't want to lose those yeah no you need a part for each one of those things <laughs> yeah, you, those are the two that are essential for the, yeah. of the brain in life exactly <laughs> yeah so that's when people that's when the scientists figured out that like your occipital lobe right that's a part of your brain that specifically handles eyesight right yeah your yeah. occipital lobe like it's kind of common knowledge now is in the back of your head and they knew that because people got shot through just the back of their head and then they couldn't see. Or someone else might get shot in another part of their head and their vision wasn't affected at all. So this was early science. Yeah. They got shot in the head, they could still see, but they forgot about chickens. Exactly. Uh, we alluded to this earlier, but but through uh, magnetic resonance, we now know that the brain has three physical layers. The first being like kind of the innermost part of the brain right at the top of the spinal column called the reptilian brain. Oh. And this is where basic functions now the brain is super complicated and i'm just like learning a lot more <laughs> from the human labs podcast which i recommend everyone to, to listen to and watch on youtube but um there are a lot of uh, neural circuits that govern different operating systems of the body right so it's the collections of different neurons in general that they can identify are responsible for different things that we do and recognizing different things in the world but in general, the first layer of the brain, the smallest layer kind of in the center right at the top of the spine, is called the reptilian layer. That's basic functions. That's where most of the neural networks are that control basic functions like breathing, eating, and uh, our fight or flight response, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, just basic survival. Basic survival mechanisms. that, And, and another thing is that we can see the same brain systems and these same neural networks in other life forms in other animals and in reptiles. So we call it the reptilian brain. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear that it's the oldest part of the brain, like the first. Yeah, it's uh, because it's the basic building blocks of survival, yeah. right? Eat, shit, fight or flight, breathe, you know. Mate. Mate, exactly. We share this part of the brain with reptiles, amphibians, birds, and fish. Mm -hmm. So you can put all of those things in the MRI and see the same sort of structures in their brains controlling the same things. Above that, part of the brain is another part of the brain called the limbic system also known as the old mammalian brain that deals with unconscious social behavior and perceptions of surroundings you know mammals are more social creatures than amphibians and birds well in certain ways yeah. in the way that we understand social behavior so that's where those the, that's why they call it the old mammalian brain and that exists in other mammals and then above that or outside of that, we have what's called the neocortex, which is goal-oriented actions, vision processing, and precise motor movements uh, when your fingers and facial expressions. Right. Yeah. So just fine-tune all the little fine movements. Fine movements. Yeah. Understanding facial expressions. So now that we are now that we're able to look at images, 3D models of the brain, we we and see when they're active, we've been able to discover that there's these three sections of the brain, which is kind of interesting, because before that, we had it as human beings. Our understanding of the brain was basically divided into three parts. Yeah, I just think it's really cool that, um, and I think it's a point that I want to drive home. 
that we are often right in our guesses, like in our intuition about how we work. Or are those intuitions informing our scientific categorization of the data? Yeah, they could be forming a bias. Yeah, like we talked about with the creation stories and the Big Bang, kind of the similarities between the Big Bang and creation stories, like, okay, did we get that right from our guesses? (laughs) Or are we just informing our findings based on you know, really deeply held beliefs and stories. Similarly, it's either really astounding that in the Vedic tradition and in the, like, in Freud's assumptions, we thought there's basically these three levels of the mind. Also, the number three chips me out, like the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. The thing about the number three is that it's the smallest number that's bigger than two. Man, that's what about two point zero one? I mean, yeah, the whole number. Okay, smallest <laughs> whole number that's big than two. And what is that? Why is that so important? I don't know. Two's only two, but three—that's three. Yeah, you know, two is the loneliest number next to number one. <laughs> You're right. It's two is yeah. the second loneliest number. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe we need a third person on the podcast. Yeah, all right. Well, we got Bodie. Yeah. Yeah. He's the. He's the he's the basic part of the brain. He's the some yeah yeah. He's the sometimes silent part of the podcast. Maybe he's the id, just basic desires. That's why he wants to leave whenever we get started. Yeah, he's like, okay, I'm out of here. So like, this is not this has nothing to do with fitness. This has <laughs> this nothing not to do art. with reproductive success. <laughs> <laughs> this is the opposite of that. I need to get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so again, now we have these new tools. Um, to understand the mind, specifically the MRI and more importantly the fMRI. The MRI is the one you like lay in magnetic resonance imaging, right? Yeah. So they can they were able to do tests where they would like show images to people in those things. Yeah. And see how like they reacted. Talk to them or yeah. Yeah. But the fMRI that's like just a little cap that you put on your head oh, with nice. electrodes attached to it, so they can have humans interact with other humans as opposed to just like pictures of them and see how the brain reacts and what part of the brain works when and all this stuff. And and through this, they're able to really get a, a better uh, or a more nuanced understanding of the unconscious mind, which we're going to talk about now. All right. And just to note, the previous parts of this episode mostly came from just kind of online research through various sources. But this next stop part that we're getting through, I've taken from Leonard Mladenov's book called Subliminal, really great book about understanding the unconscious and conscious minds and their different functions and uh, roles that they play in in your day-to-day life. highly recommend it. A statistic I've heard recently, but is that um, by the time you're 30, 95% of your daily activities are unconscious. Huh, yeah. You've built subconscious pathways for 95% of what you do by the time you're 30. Which sounds like a lot, but like most of those things are like walking breathing, eating. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them are brushing your teeth, you know, it's parts of cooking dinner, making coffee, even those things, the, yeah. the way you drive to work, the, path, the literal pathways you take mm-hmm. in your physical world are navigated subconsciously, 95% subconsciously. And as you get older, I think that percentage just ratchets up a little by little. Yeah. All right. Earlier today I was driving mm-hmm. and I came to an intersection and I just got in the lane to turn left. Yeah. And I was like, where the fuck am I going? I need to go straight. And like, right. I don't, I was trying to figure out why I had, like, I was trying to think, figure out why I thought I had to turn left, but I never did think I tur- needed to turn left. I didn't think it, it just, I just got in the lane and started doing it. And yeah. I was like, yeah, you're unconscious for whatever reason, determined that you had to turn left there. Yeah. You never thought it in the conscious sense. You're and unconscious. And I was, yeah, I'm still it. trying to figure out what the reason was. It was what was the just, intersection? At Guerneville and Fulton. So it was probably just 
to go to work. Yeah, it's probably just because <laughs> that's the direction work was in, yeah. Right. So but that's not the route that I drive to work. Yeah, but, I mean, the unconscious can be more complex than that. It yeah. can know typically when you are driving, you are headed to this destination. Yeah. And then also have access to your mental map mm-hmm. and just know in a typical scenario if you went to a job site and you were headed back to work. I mean, that's probably the thing is you're often going back to your office from a variety of locations. Honestly, I'm, I guess by number or quantity, I drive back to the office way more often than I drive back home. Right. So so nine times out of 10 or whatever it is, like you, when you're driving, yeah. you're driving back to your office. So yeah. your unconscious route finder is just positioning that <laughs> as your destination <laughs> yeah. subconsciously. Yeah. Um, and I'm using subconscious and unconscious kind of interchangeably, but it's kind of interchangeable. Yeah. So the, the modern understanding of the unconscious mind it plays a role in so many different things. Uh, but one of the main roles, and we kind of alluded to this earlier, is is just in the d- to deal with the sheer volume of sensory inputs. Like you can't be it, it's very it would be very difficult to function. It is very difficult to function because some people are in this state all the time. It's very difficult to function in everyday life if you are aware of all of the sensory inputs that you're getting at all times. Yeah. All of the visual input, all of the sen- senses, like feeling, touch, hearing. If all of that you're having to process consciously yeah. all the time, super difficult to function. That yeah. all needs to occur in the background so that we can <laughs> yeah. that we can put our attention yeah. on the things that we all put our attention on on a day-to-day life, like... You know, Game of Thrones or <laughs> working stuff. a stupid office job <laughs> or playing Pokemon. Pokemon. These are the things that our conscious mind needs to pay attention to instead of just like the autonomic processes like breathing. Remember to breathe. Yeah, remember to breathe. Remember Beat to your breathe. Heart. Yeah, exactly. Pump that blood. Or even just like balance. Like imagine walking walking on any surface, yeah. so flat or otherwise, but having to be consciously shifting your balance as you went from your left foot to your right foot to your left foot to your right foot just to walk yeah they can't even figure out how to do that with robots or they just figured out how to do that with robots because that's such a complex series of inputs and outputs to be managing all at once so all of that on top of breathing on top of all of the unconscious bodily systems that your liver and your spleen and your kidneys are doing all the time take all that and then add in all of the sensory input <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah the, the sheer management of all of that data, all of that electrical input and output is far too much for you to then also have conscious thought and be able to write a poem or read a book or have a conversation with another human being. In order to have those quote unquote upper level processes, you need to separate them from these basic processing, the basic orders of processing and, and survival. So our mind in this amazing way has divided itself from itself. Yeah, it just has like kind of the autopilot section. Yeah. yeah. And so it has this big, huge extensive autopilot section. I think we we talked about it briefly, but 95% of what you do, by the time you're 30, 95% of what you do on a daily basis is performed by your unconscious mind. Now, the the bulk of that, like we were saying, like you brought up earlier, when so, you stop paying attention while you're driving, your unconscious mind takes over of takes over your driving, yeah. including looking for obstacles, checking your speed, yeah. watching out for other vehicles, Making watching out for turns. pedestrians, and and your automatic guidance system. Yeah. 
And for you, your default automatic guidance system and your mental map of where you are and where you're going, and you're not even aware of it, it's taking you back to, to your work. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah, that says something. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's things like that. I mean, and, and obviously that wasn't built in to your basic operating system as a child. That's something that has been added in to your unconscious processing in your adult life and specifically since you've been working at that job. Yeah. But we do that with so many things that we're not even aware of. Like how yeah. often are you spacing out while you're washing dishes or oh. spacing out while you're preparing food and going through these physical ma- making, you know, your body is moving, your body yeah. is doing things, it's grabbing the salt. Yeah. Taking a shower, brushing your teeth and your conscious mind is completely somewhere else. Yeah. You know, it's like when you open a Reese's cup, and you throw the Reese's cup in the trash instead of the wrapper. And then you put the wrapper in your mouth. It's very frustrating. <laughs> then you're like, But I think it's interesting, and I think we can all kind of see in our own lives, especially if we have very specific routines like and very set ways of doing things, that that's probably, I mean, literally, the way the brain works, and I know this from the Huberman Labs podcast, is you have all of these, all of these neurons, right? All of these brain cells, a vast number of them. Yeah. And by the time you're 30, like many, 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 many of them will have died. And the ones that won't have died are the ones that are used regularly. Mm, yeah. And they're used regularly in these sets of neural pathways. And those those neural pathways, it's kind of like a use it or lose it system. So the ones that you use regularly. Chickens, jokes. Yeah. Stay active. And the ones that don't get used will eventually die. So. Everything else. (laughs) Yeah. So if we have a very strict, uh, strict routines that we're stuck in, we are literally wiring our brains to do those things. And we, it requires less and less conscious thought to run through that operation Mm -hmm. the more you do it. So when people talk about things like muscle memory, that is what they're talking about. But it also applies to more complex systems like driving to work or driving to the grocery store or dropping your kids off at school. Those things become completely automatic because the more we use those neural pathways the more established they get and the more easy it is to drive electrical impulses through those same neural pathways human labs has this great episode on play that you should all listen to where like literally play the act of playing also known as fucking around and finding out yeah is yeah in in a neurobiological understanding of it is the way that we practice practice new things that are outside of our typical operating processes, specifically in social situations. We play different roles than we would normally play to see if it's safe. And we want to engage in play to learn and learn new ways and try out new neural pathways. Mm, Yeah. But we have to signal to other members of our social group that it's play behavior so that there aren't the repercussions that there could be yeah. if it were a more serious behavior yeah, like, to step into a different role. Like you call somebody an asshole and you got a little smile on your face. Yeah. Hey, asshole. And there are physical things we do, like a tilt to the head it is a play indication to other members or of just, our social group. Yeah, or just a laugh or a chuckle. You're like, yeah. hey, Or in text message, we put yeah. lol, lol, or we put a laugh or haha. <laughs> that's how we indicate to other members of social group and, that we're trying this out and it's not serious. And yeah. if you don't like it, let me know and I won't do it again. Dogs do kind of the same thing. And when they're wrestling around and growling at each other, yeah. you'll see them sneeze all the time. Yeah. And that's a signal to each other like, oh, we're just fucking around. We're fucking around. It's yeah. true. All that is to say that they can physically see, like through fMRI, they can literally image these neural pathways that are created and reinforced and sort of 
uh, carved out and specified over time. Yeah. And these things end up being part of our unconscious uh, processes. But here's something also interesting about the unconscious, right? It's not... So, like I said before, your unconscious is taking in all of these sensory inputs, doing all of this work behind the scenes, but that doesn't mean that then when you want to consciously access that, it has it all already and available for you. It's not, it's not, its job is not to give you the true hard data all the time. The job of the unconscious mind is to give your conscious mind what it needs to generate that functional model that your conscious mind can then exist in. Huh. Okay. So it kind of has to provide the information to the conscious part of the brain so that the conscious part of the brain will generate a thought, a certain thought. It can't just give it the thought. It's got to like kind of almost well, inception it. It. <laughs> it does inception it. It doesn't, it, your unconscious mind isn't, isn't giving you the raw data. Your unconscious mind is selective about what it gives to your conscious mind. It generates a model of the raw, from the raw data it receives yeah. and then gives you that. Right. Yeah. So like in real concrete terms, like you and I are sitting here in this room and our brain has modeled this room. Yeah. Both in terms of physical space and visual input and auditory signals for us and then gives it to our conscious mind. Our conscious mind just knows here we are in this room. There's some books over there. You're right there. There's my dog. It's just a model. It's just a summary. Yeah. And there's a lot of examples of uh, how unreliable the model is when compared with actual data for one for one just like basic example is that we have blind spots on both of our eyes yeah it's where the optic nerve attaches to the back of the eyeball right yeah so where the optic nerve attaches to the retina there are no photosensitive cells so you literally can't receive light signals from particular locations uh, in your eye Uh, so if you take a piece of paper and just for the purposes of this example, draw it like a cross or an X or a T on the left side of the paper and then draw a circle on the right side of the paper. And what you're going to do is you're going to close one eye. So if you close your left eye and you look at the you look at the uh, cross. Now, keep looking straight at the cross and move the paper to toward and away from your face. And at a certain point, the circle is going to disappear. Let me try it out. Try it out. Thanks for drawing these for me. You're welcome. Oh, yeah. It's right there. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's so that your brain just like fills in that blind spot with just the white paper, or the white from the paper that... It's... Yeah. It's actually... And that's the thing, is you actually aren't seeing anything. It's weird that it's like right in the middle of your vision, too. It's like... Yeah, it's, cause not, it's Yeah, I guess that's it, where the optic nerve it's is. It's right in the back, back of your back. Yeah. yeah. So you have a blind spot right in the middle of your vision. But the thing is that your other eye, your unconscious mind is giving you a model of your vision and it's filling in the blanks from your right eye with the information from your left eye. Yeah. Now there's this cool, they've done these really cool studies in in what's called a split brain patient. Do you know what that is? Just where the the connective between the right and left brain, whatever connects it, I don't know what it's called, but that's, that's gone or damaged, right? Yeah. Yeah, so what that's called is the corpus callosum. And in in patients where the corpus callosum is damaged or gone or whatever, their left brain can't talk to their right brain. So there's some very, very interesting experiments out there there that explore how your left brain and your right brain, not only do they do different things, but they result in 
different outputs from your conscious mind, right? So you can kind of study the unconscious mind through this way. There, in, in the book Subliminal, there's a really great example where they have somebody with split brain syndrome, so their left brain can't talk to their right brain. And they'll hold up an image, like they have a divider, so his his right eye can see one thing, his left eye can see the other thing. Okay. Right? So let's say you have a picture of the chicken on the left side and a picture of a snowy field on the right side. And then they're asked to pick from a series of words. The patient would choose a chicken to associate with the chicken foot and a shovel to associate with the snow. However, when they're asked to reason why they chose the shovel, the response would be related to the chicken. The shovel is for cleaning out the chicken coop. Yeah. So he didn't even acknowledge that there was snow. He didn't even acknowledge why they that there was snow at all. Yeah. Just acknowledged that they picked a shovel and it had to do with the chicken foot. Even though the shovel is has to go with the snow one. They're yeah. only seeing the chicken one. You might think, oh, I don't know why I picked that. He does know why, or he thinks he does, and he explains because we're shoveling out the coop. And you nailed it right there. What's going on? Like, part of our brain is giving us the answer to why we're doing things. And it usually gives us the answer after the thing has happened. Exactly. And it's not giving us the actual reason we chose something. Yeah. It's giving us a reason that fits into our whatever our mental model is. Yeah, our narrative. So we chose the shovel, even though we saw a chicken, because... Uh, oh, because you use the shovel be? to clean out a chicken coop. Oh, obviously. Not because also another part of your brain saw snow and wanted you to shovel the snow. It's not giving us the raw data. It's giving us a, a representation of the data that makes sense in our model, in our narrative. Mm-hmm. So... Tell if me. somebody wanted to split their brain and remove their corpus callosum, how would one do so? I mean, for science. There are many ways. Uh, there could be a dramatic accident on a railroad, and a railroad spike <laughs> could just go into the middle of your brain. Well, that's pretty specific. You could also be in a trench in World War One, and a bullet could hit you just right in the right spot. Mm. That happens. It has I'm, happened. Interesting. Those are my two examples. <laughs> now, how would I go about this? Um, you would use a Sawzall and... <laughs> So we're, our own brain is just kind of lying to us all the time <laughs> so that we can function. It's really important, it's, right? Yeah, you got to. Because if it actually gave us all that raw data all the time, we would have a much harder time existing. There's another really cool example from Mladenov's book, Subliminal, where he talks about a guy who has like perfect recall, right? Like completely photographic memory yeah photographic memory he can remember everything he's ever read word for word he can remember like if you went up to him and you're like hey do you remember the conversation we had in 1984 when we met at this gala and there were all these people there and he would be able to recite that conversation word for word for memory but it's kind of a curse also because he this guy like he kind of has face blindness because he doesn't remember people's faces as like the aggregate expressions that this person might have on their face is Tyler Cole. Instead, he remembers each expression a person has had as a different specific memory of a face. Okay, so if he meets a person and they're happy or like smiling a lot, if he meets them a week or two later or a year later, yeah, yes, time doesn't matter to him. <laughs> but if he meet next time he meets that person, if they're sad, he won't recognize them. No, or if they're if they look a little different, yeah, it, there's not that association. There's not this like lump together like extrapolation of the of the visual data. It's just like okay, I remember the specific moment and that specific way that that face looked in that specific moment, and then later 
there's no <laughs> yeah. association with it because it looks different. Yeah. Because I remember that it does not look like it did before. But he probably remembers the guy's name. Yeah, but he doesn't know. He, he can't put a name to a face, so what good is that? <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> I mean, I guess you remember it is written down. You just yeah. need name tags. Oh, yeah. All the time. Hello, my name is beautifulanimalspodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful.animals.pod <laughs> on Instagram. Uh, nice plug. Yeah, thank you. Uh, another thing I want to talk about, another great example from Lana's book, Subliminal, is the occurrence of what's called um, blind sight. Have you ever heard of this? I don't think so. It's not, uh, it has nothing to do with Dungeons and Dragons. Oh. Uh, <laughs> then I definitely haven't heard of it. <laughs> yeah. But, so there's there was this case with this guy who had a stroke, and it damaged part of the visual cortex in his brain, but his eyes were not damaged at all right so he went blind but his eyes were perfectly functional right it was just the part of the brain they just weren't connected to the, the part of the brain that processes that visual input um oh, wasn't like, working that's but called, the visual that's was damaged yeah is, but the, the visual the visual system the eyes the retina yeah though that was all fine it was all perfectly functional right so they did this they they wanted to test this guy and be like okay well what is is there anywhere else that those visual inputs are going to right because mm. he can't see he can't see anything but they put him through all these tests and there was this interesting stuff that came out of it for example they showed him a series of happy and sad faces uh-huh. and asked him to say to report it was this face happy and was this face sad and you know he's like i don't know i can't see and they're like well just go ahead and guess and he guessed right like 95 percent of the time huh. yeah. because especially with faces, especially for human beings and other social animals, those inputs from our visual system aren't just going to our conscious visual cortex or visual like neural network. Yeah. They're also going to other places in our brain associated with unconscious processes about knowing if a person near us is happy or sad. So right? it's kind of still connected to some of the autopilot parts of the brain. Exactly. Exactly. So he can't consciously see... Right. So if you ask him, what are you seeing? He can't say what he's seeing. But those those signals are still going to unconscious parts of the brain that are giving feedback to other reptilian or old mammalian limbic system parts of the brain that are functional. Right. So another example is the same guy. They put him through like an obstacle course. Without his walking stick. Which sounds pretty cruel. It does. And unusual. (laughs) But he was able to avoid the obstacles in his path and not trip or fall Hmm. because that part of your brain that connects your vision with your um, like walking or movement. Survival instinct if those booby traps were pretty dangerous. Yeah. it's it, it, And that's what it is. It's attached to a deeper survival part of the brain, yeah, not the, the simple, conscious visual processing. The simple survival mechanism of don't fall over, don't, don't trip over Don't go that. off this cliff. Yeah. yeah. That, I didn't know that that was a thing, and I thought that was really freaking interesting. Yeah. There's parts of your brain that your visual symbol, signals are going to that you're completely, un, that you cannot be conscious of. Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, you'll hear about subliminal messaging. Yeah. Right. And like things that are flashed too quickly for your conscious mind to take account for, but that your unconscious mind still sees. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's later on in this same book in Subliminal, when he's talking more about unconscious bias, they'll take images or, or they'll take, they'll flash words, you know, with positive or negative connotations and then ask these participants to associate or just to pick an image 
And if the image is of a person who's in that person's in-group, right, which is like your your people you uh, associate with sort of tribally. Simply right? like just people that look like them. It can be people that look like them or it can be people that – well, there's basically you have a lot of layers of in-groups and out-groups. Yeah. And Mladenov goes into this in greater detail, but we'll just kind of do a quick overview of it really quick. I mean, there's people that look like you, right? So people of the same race. But then you also have an association with people that do the same type of job as you. Oh. So, like, doctors are more likely to trust other doctors. Hmm, okay. Because they're in the and same in-group. Yeah. One actually, one, this is not an in-group, out-group thing, but one interesting thing from Mladenov's book, I wasn't going to bring it up, but uh, people are more likely to marry people with the same last name as them. But that's and that's sort of part of a in group out group thing. Did he do this study in the South? <laughs> it's crazy though. Like you can see the distribution of people that marry other people named Smith is like people named Smith are more likely to marry other people named Smith than people named Brown, like five to one. Huh. It's like a crazy ratio. Interesting. Yeah, Smiths are far more likely to marry other Smiths. Johnsons are far more likely to marry other Johnsons. Johnson? Yeah. Williamses, Joneses. It's crazy. Like, by a lot. I wonder how that how that would be affected as the names get less common. Like, I don't know. Mm, that's an interesting question. But yeah, so in-groups and out-groups are a real thing. And one, one really good example, or one uh, kind of hilarious example from Mladenov's book, Subliminal, is that for all professions... You're more likely to trust someone from the same profession as you because they're in your in-group, except for lawyers. <laughs> that says a lot. Yeah. Well, I think what the what it, their conclusion, the researchers that did this study, their conclusion was that because lawyers are one of the few professions where the in-group are associated with other lawyers, but they're also primarily against other lawyers. Exactly. Yeah. They're almost, so, almost always against. They're always know, against yeah. another lawyer. Yeah. yeah in like their professional career. Yeah. Well, they're on teams, but they're also against another team of lawyers. So (laughs) the profession of lawyer on its own doesn't determine the in-group, right? Uh Uh, Like you might, your in-group might then be like uh, defense attorneys if you're a defense attorney, right? But it's not lawyers in general because you're going to hate those people that are prosecutors. Prosecutors, exactly. But for every other profession, like doctors prefer to be with doctors mm-hmm. construction workers prefer to trust other construction workers every other profession like that's a very significant in-group versus yeah. out-group association another example from that book that's pretty interesting is they they did this study where they played different music in like a wine shop hmm. to see if it would affect what wine sold so they played french music and it increased the amount of french wine bought Mm-hmm. by some crazy dramatic percentage yeah. and then when they played german music then the same thing happened but with german wine yeah. but the thing the thing that's really interesting about all these studies and i should have mentioned earlier is what when you ask the people that bought the wine why they bought it they're not going to tell you it's because of the music they're going to they're going to say oh it was because I had heard good things about this vintage or i the label looked really interesting they're going to give you a different reasoning that complies with their whatever their model yeah. is, huh. as opposed to. But we know from the research that the actual determining factor was what music was playing, not where the bottle was sitting. Or, well, actually, that makes an effect too, but <laughs> <laughs> not not what the people say it is. And so, in all of these studies, and I should have mentioned that earlier, but in all of these studies, the reason that we know it's an unconscious 
decision-making progress as opposed to a conscious decision-making progress is because the participants in the studies are asked afterward why they chose to do that thing and they never say it's because of what ended up being the determining factor. Yeah. I wonder what kind of wine they would sell in that wine shop if they played a bunch of punk rock. Same. Box wines. Box wines. (laughs) No doubt. The Franzia. (laughs) The Franzia, yeah. And maybe some 40s. Yeah, they probably sell a lot of other liquor, (laughs) shitty beer, yeah. One of the coolest studies about unconscious like impacts on a person's life is they they had all these high school students take uh, SAT tests. Mm-hmm. And then for the purposes of this example, let's say they all scored average. They told half of the students their real scores in the average range. And then they took the other half of students and told them they scored extremely highly on the SAT. Those same those students that they told that they scored higher on the SAT than they actually did would go on to perform better in every class, huh. get higher grades, perform better on tests, and get accepted to more colleges yeah. than the group that they told their actual scores to. They literally became smarter because they thought they were smarter. <laughs> That's crazy. That's the kind of the craziest thing about all this is like, all you have to do is kind of tell yourself that you're smarter, <laughs> yeah, and then you actually are smarter. <laughs> So yeah, send us send us some feedback telling us how good our podcast did, so we can how, make it better. <laughs> yeah, well, then we'll start making a much better podcast as a result of that yeah. positive feedback. Well, it's funny. I mean, one thing too. In general, everyone believes that they're better than they are. Like if you ask someone if they're in what percentage of podcasters they're in, they're all going to say they're above average. <laughs> yeah. Even though obviously, I mean, they can't all be above average. Certainly, you're, people would say that if you asked about their driving skill. Yes. They all think they're above average driving. Ask them about whatever. I mean, many of these studies that they're referenced, like they'll ask students, okay, like what percentage do you think you're in just in the spectrum of students, good students? Everyone thinks they're, 90% of students think they're above average students. Yeah. Which isn't true, obviously. 94% of teachers think they're above average educators. Yeah. 80% of doctors think that they diagnose uh, pneumonia properly when only, they only diagnose it properly 60% of the time. Yeah. Yeah, so that kind of gets into mindset, and we'll talk more about mindset. I think we're going to have to do it in part two because yeah. uh, we're running out of time here. But I really want to talk about mindset, uh, the effects of mindset, because there are some pretty crazy pretty crazy results. Your mindset can have a larger effect than you might think on your success or failure or on your even your physical body and your physical outcomes. Yeah. And we'll be talking about these in the next episode. Too, we're going to go back. We're going to talk more about mindset, uh, and the effects of mindset in the next episode. But before we go, just cause a little teaser. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I want to tell you about one study. It's called the, uh, hotel worker study. Now this was featured on, uh, an episode of human labs podcast with Dr. Isla Crum, who's a researcher on placebo effects. So in this study, that she performed, and she's a researcher, I believe, at Stanford, but it could have been a different uh, high-level institution. Well, yeah. well, I'll get it on there next week. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so they took um, they took all these uh, hotel workers, right? These were cleaning men and women who there's a huge hotel, you know, like twenty stories or something. They're going up and down a lot of stairs. They're changing linens. They're doing a lot of physical activity yeah. every day for eight hours a day. So they took half of these hotel workers in this study. And they took them aside and they told them like, hey, what you're doing every day is equivalent to spending two hours in the gym. And that they you should see health benefits associated with going to the gym for two hours a day yeah. just from the work that you're doing uh, every day at your job. 
So they took half the group and they told him that the other half was the control group. So they just, they didn't tell him anything. They just let him do their normal thing. Yeah. Uh, and when they did this, before they told him anything, they went, they had all of the hotel workers go through a series of just vitals check, right? Cholesterol, resting heart rate, blood pressure. Yeah. Just a general physical, general physical exam, right? Yeah. You know, muscle mass, all that stuff. Yeah. And so then six weeks later, they checked back in with the same, the same groups, right? And the group that they had told that their physical activity was equivalent to spending two hours in the gym had seen improvements on every single one of the markers that they measured, yeah. right? So they had lower blood pressure, lower cholesterol, higher muscle mass. They'd lost weight. All of them had improved physically. And yeah. the only thing that they had changed was their mindset around the work that they were doing yeah, every they're day. Yeah, they going through their daily work and they're thinking, hmm, this is like spending two hours in the gym. Yeah. I'm going to get buff. I'm going to get buff. Yeah. That's it. Thinking to themselves, doing what I'm doing right now is going to get me buff. Got them buff. Yeah. Yeah. And the other group saw no change whatsoever. And the only thing that was different between the two groups was that knowledge that what they were doing was going to have benefits for them. Yeah. That's 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 crazy. I, know, I work a lot with a lot of concrete workers and that shit. I don't know if you know about this about concrete, but it's fucking heavy. Yeah. And they're dragging these 300 pound hoses around. And obviously they're stronger than me, but if they did that amount of work in the gym they'd be fucking ripped right but i mean they are pretty fucking ripped because they're carrying concrete around all day but yeah it's they a- don't look it <laughs> <laughs> no but if you don't have the mindset around what i'm what i'm doing is going to make me a physically amazing animal you're not necessarily going to become a physically amazing animal yeah yeah you're like oh it's just work if i wanted to get buff i'd go to the gym i'd have to go to the this gym is just work yeah but no, <laughs> they just changed that mindset and changed that mindset and it yeah. changed the, it physically changed the bodies of the people who they told that to. Yeah. That's fucking insane. Yeah. So this episode, we talked about the unconscious. We're going to talk about it a little bit more in next episode, but then we're going to start getting into the placebo effect because there's some very interesting studies going on right now around the placebo effect, like that hotel study. And, and we're also going to talk about the claims that are unfounded <laughs> that have to do with the placebo effect. And we're going to try and see, you know, uh, where the rubber meets the road on on those kind of things, and and what we can do, what we can do with the knowledge of the power that our mindset has over our physical well being. So, anyway, stay tuned. Come back next week. All right. And we'll talk about how these beautiful animals can become even more beautiful you just know what? by knowing that they're beautiful. I will come back next week. You better. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so this is why I want to tell you guys every episode: you're so fucking beautiful. You're so fucking strong. You're the most fantastic, beautiful animals out there in the world. Just know it. I know it. You know it. It's true. Your ears are so strong. You're going through it like a vigorous ear workout. Just listening to us. Yeah. It's a, it's tough. It's the equivalent. <laughs> I know it's not easy. <laughs> it's the equivalent of a six pack of nails just being driven into your side wow. of your ear. Wow. Don't the give hammer. them that image. It's gonna make them get headaches. <laughs> oh shit. You're yeah. Right. You got to be really careful. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're in a position of extraordinary power yeah. right now. You want to do a fortune cookie? Well, just like a good Chinese meal, at the end of this podcast, we like to open a little tiny cookie with a little slip of paper inside. I love cookies. Also known as a fortune cookie. You know, one time we actually bought Chinese food and it was kind of gross. And they didn't even fucking give us fortune cookies. It was such a nightmare. Yeah, it was a bad experience. It's literally a nightmare. (laughs) Enjoy life before it's too late. Oh, God. Oh, God, it's... It's not a good positive message. It's a lot of pressure. <laughs> I'm going to say instead of that, I'm just going to say, you know what, guys? Juice it. <laughs> Take every minute you can and just juice it. Just know that life is full and vibrant and beautiful and good. 
Enjoy. And every day is a gift from God. Enjoy a clean glass of water before it's too late. It's, it's not too late. Just, just <laughs> don't worry about it being too late. Just enjoy it. Just enjoy life. Just get out there, juice it, live your life, do what you love, love what you do. Hang out with your friends and tell them about Beautiful Animals Podcast and maybe even email beautifulanimalspodcast at gmail.com. Or, or slide into our DMs at the, on Instagram uh, at beautiful.animals.pod. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, as I said, juice it. Uh, as you said, hydrate yourself. Yes, stay hydrated. And we're going to be back next week with more shit. Thanks for joining us again. Talk to you soon. One of the red flags in this other book that we're going to talk about on this episode uh, called Becoming Supernatural by Dr. Joe Dispenza. Doctors in air quotes, by the way. <laughs> but um, one of the red flags early on in that book was, I forget what he was saying, but he was talking about like how your subconscious mind can you know, make you more popular with your friends and also make you have more power over your enemies. And I was like, wait a fucking second. <laughs> Who has enemies? <laughs> like, this isn't a fucking action movie. Like, know, right? How many people out there actually have, like, just normal people have enemies? Yeah, I got a bunch of enemies. There's, Do you? Yeah, a bunch of squirrels that live in my yard. Uh, yeah, okay. I was fucking up my house. Yeah, I have, like, figurative enemies, like my sweet tooth is <laughs> certainly an enemy. My waistline? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's one of my bigger enemies. Something that seeks to destroy me <laughs> and is an antagonist to my, like, positive goals. But yeah. I don't have, I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe I have a lot of people out there that don't like me, but yeah. I don't fucking think about them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know them. Well, I mean, yeah, the world, <laughs> see, see, I have a different philosophy here. I see the world as full of enemies. You know, oh. squirrels, there's <laughs> other drivers on the road when I'm driving. They're all enemies. <laughs> They're all against my goal. Oh, I see. Yeah, and uh, let's see who else. Your sweet tooth. My sweet tooth is your enemy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because of its effects on my waist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I, I see the world as with no enemies whatsoever, and you see it as completely full. Completely of full to the brim. That's uh, you know, it's that kind of dynamic tension that makes this podcast so engaging. <laughs> so engaging. Yeah.